People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Marina Paul is an athlete, an author, and the founder of Superhero, a sustainable sports clothing business giving women the freedom to perform. The inspiration for her company came from her book, Becoming a Superhero, Awaken Your Superpowers and Inspire the Magic in Others. Welcome to Health Gig, Marina. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here with you. I'm so excited you're here, and I didn't realize that you knew my niece, Jenna Cook, who we both determined before the podcast, who we both love, which is a fun connection, and I'm sorry her mother's not here. She does the podcast with me, but I'm delighted to be here, and I so enjoyed getting to know a little bit about you, and I'm thrilled that our listeners are going to have a chance to know more about you. But I wanted to start the podcast by asking you to tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, your family. I know you're kind of from a sports family. Tell us about you. Yeah. So I am born and raised in Orange County, California, which I like to think of when I was little, it's kind of like a sports Mecca. My family's very involved in all sort of sports activities, but we were always super active growing up. My brother and I each played three sports. He went on to play college baseball and then professional baseball. I always had this draw to the East Coast. So that sort of took me to Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where I played soccer. And I just fell in love with the East Coast. And so I lived in New York and D.C. for a little bit. But my story where it really starts to take shape was during my sort of the end of high school, my senior year, and then going into my freshman year at Georgetown. And that's kind of where it all starts. (laughs) Well, you're three sports. So it's soccer, obviously. And what else? So growing up, I was soccer, volleyball. And then that third one was always whatever else I could fit. Sometimes (laughs) it was basketball. I did do track in high school, mostly to stay in shape for soccer. By no means, I'm like touting any track records here, but it was always kind of a flexible third sport, but soccer and volleyball were my main sports. So you came to Georgetown, Division Mm -hmm. One soccer. That's where you really excelled and found your place. So tell us about that. It's so interesting. I look back now, being five years out of that whole experience, People will say when you tell them your accolades that you had a very successful career, but I look at it in a tremendously different way than most people do. And I think that that's pretty common when we reflect on our past experiences just as individuals. My freshman year, I came in, my number one goal was to be the best teammate I could, to be in the best shape and to play as many minutes as I could. I just wanted to play. Luckily, I was able to have that happen and I was able to play every minute of every game. But simultaneously, I was going through a tremendous eating disorder and was in kind of a very toxic romantic relationship with a much older individual. When I got to the end of my season, I had to sit down with my coach and my coach said, listen, this is how far you used to hit a ball, meaning how far I could kick a ball about, you know, over 50 yards. And then he had film of me towards the end of my season. I think it was actually going into our spring season, which is our off season in the winter. And he said, now you can only kick the ball maybe 20 yards. And I had completely lost all of my strength and everything. So when you look at it from an accolades perspective, you can see Big East rookie team. That was still when Notre Dame and Syracuse and all those great teams were in our conference. And so 
that was an honor. But when I look back on what actually was occurring that entire time, I was going through a tremendous doubt and battles with perfectionism and body image. How did you get help? Was it your coach that really brought attention to the whole issue or did your family help or how did you get some help with that? That's a really good question. And I probably would have changed it. <laughs> Hindsight's always twenty twenty, I guess. But my coach said, we might revoke your scholarship and kick you off the team and send you to rehab because you are ill. This something is not working here. I told him, no, 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 no. I'm going to figure it out. I got this. He's like, I will give you three weeks. So right then and there, I decided, you know what? I have this opportunity to change what I'm doing or keep what I'm doing and lose everything I've ever worked for and dreamed for. So it's kind of that ultimatum that helped me get out of it. We didn't have any counseling on campus, which I know they do now, which is awesome. I could have totally used that. It have been tremendously helpful. But essentially soccer, I write about this in my book, soccer became my crutch. And so I suddenly had to survive for soccer and for my teammates and not just to find fulfillment in myself and be okay with myself. So soccer in some ways saved me, but at the same time, everything that I didn't actually solve and I just put a bandaid on during my freshman and sophomore season came back once soccer was no longer my crutch and no longer in the picture. So did you actually go to rehab or not then, but later on? So I did not go to rehab. I think also at that point, there was a lot of resistance and a lot of denial and I couldn't actually admit what was going wrong. I just knew that I was physically really skinny and not eating and, and doing other detrimental things to my body. So I kind of like tried to stop that or limit it as much as possible, but all of those thoughts still circulated in my head. However, when you're in such a competitive environment like Georgetown for soccer and school, where literally every aspect you're competing, your grades are based on a curve, all of that, you almost kind of lose that emotion and you go straight into what do I need to do to be successful and achieve, achieve, achieve. And so that's what I did. So I did not go to rehab and I did not get help from any therapists or anything. I'm just curious, did your teammates ever confront you about what they were noticing or was it just something you were dealing with privately? It was something I was dealing with privately. I think people knew something was going wrong, but to their defense, I think it's also really difficult to confront someone about that. Yeah. I also wouldn't go out with the team. I wouldn't celebrate. I wouldn't do all these things. I got very involved in a religious group and I was doing things to isolate myself. And I think people notice that something is wrong. There's definitely comments where like, hey, are you okay? But I just kind of shrugged it off and isolated. So ultimately you came back to Georgetown, right? For a graduate year. So how did that happen? It starts my junior year. So junior year, I was named a captain of the team during our Big East championship at St. John's. I will never forget this because it was televised. So my parents were watching from California and a bunch of different friends. I tore my ACL in our championship game and they kept replaying it. So I, was, I actually watched it after I did it. It was just a really bad injury. My knee completely caved in and it was traumatic. So I tore my ACL. I actually started limping off the field being like, I'm fine. I'll go back in. And my, my trainer's like, no, you just blew out your knee. You're not, you can't play anymore. So I tried to come back really fast from that. I had surgery in December. I tried to come back to the next season. I came back a little bit too fast um, at eight months and I retore my ACL my senior season. 
I was four games into our season. And had I played in that fifth game, which was the next day, I would have been ineligible for a red shirt. So by some luck, I was able to redshirt my senior season, got surgery, and then came back for my graduate redshirt season. Through all that time, I write a lot about this in my book, but I was still the captain of our team. But having to go from the height of my career, which my junior season, to absolute low of senior season, not being able to play tearing your ACL twice, to feeling crazy enough like you want to come back again for a fifth year after you've torn your ACL twice with some of your best players just having graduated and not starting my graduate season when I had always started every single game in the terms of for people who don't play sports, being extremely good at something and then told you're not good enough anymore because of injury was tremendously difficult for me to deal with. So one of the things that I read in your book, leadership means more than your playing ability. And I feel like that's one of the big lessons you've learned during that period. Absolutely. I would say that in tandem with that, I say recognize the people that aren't the starting team who are working tremendously hard every day to make that starting team, to make what you say, you know, the top line of the business grow because they are your greatest asset and they need to be recognized. And that's what I realized from not starting. It was the greatest blessing I ever had because I got to see how hard these people work. They maybe weren't the most talented, but they made our team so much better so that we could go and beat the top teams in the country because without them, we would have never had that ability. And so I think from that lens, leadership taught me that there's so much more than your skill level. It's being able to identify all the attributes that people around you bring to the table Mm. and how do you best sort of utilize them to build like this cohesive unit that really excels. Such a good lesson. So this book we're talking about Mm -hmm. is called Becoming a Superhero. What made you decide to write the book? I remember explicitly it was April, 2020. I had, like many people, taken a hiatus from the city I was living in in DC and moved home temporarily to California where I'm from. And I was going on a midday walk that started to become a daily practice. And I just had shut my computer, went for my walk and been like, I am so unfulfilled in life. I've had all of these life experiences. I've been through all of this personal trauma with perfectionism and weight on my shoulders and learning all these things through leadership and then having to rebuild myself after my college career and and meeting all these people and seeing everything that was happening in DC and being immersed in the world. I want to do something for myself and I want to do something for my friends because we're having these incredible conversations about the leaders that we want to be in life, but there is not a manual or resource where we can start to identify how do we actually become those leaders? And I didn't want a resource that was like, wake up at 5am, eat this for breakfast, do, you know, all of these sort of tangible things that didn't really mean anything. I wanted to know the emotion behind who these leaders were from a wide spectrum of all these leaders, not just in sports. That's what really got me started on this book. And then through my interviews, I really got to the heart of what this book was about, which is building deep connection with yourself in order to elevate the lives of others. I love that. So what was the criteria for the people that you interviewed and what makes a superhero in your opinion? (laughs) I would reach out to anybody I had maybe like a four degree of separation. So 
I tried to be strategic about it because I wasn't going to get the Michelle Obamas, (laughs) but the criteria for the women I chose was, are they well-respected in their community? I wanted a person and I interviewed all women. So I wanted a woman who is well-respected. I wanted a woman who inspires people. And I wanted a woman who I felt based off of what I knew, social media and forums and things left the world better than she found it. And then I wanted a woman who, even if she was afraid of things, she still did them anyway. So many good life lessons in this book. Talk about representation and how it allows us to see the art of what is possible. I thought that was a great point. I really wanted to talk about this because of everything that was happening in the world with COVID and all the unknown and being in DC in the middle of all the protests, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And I grew up in a community that was many people lived the same lives. It was kind of a very homogenous community. And I went to DC and I got to experience all of these new people, all of these new cultures, all of these ways of talking and living and doing and playing. And I experienced that in New York as well. I think when I think of representation, the athletic community taught me how to be the best and successful and all of these things. But when I think of representation as in this other layer of humanity, and so representation to me and in this book means that we can only think of success, but we take out the humanity And we take out sort of what uniquely makes us human. And when we're able to bring so many other people to the table, mostly minorities, we are able to sort of fall in love with humankind. We're able to understand how other people work and how other people live. And I think that that's so much more a goal and intention of this book than it is to sort of meet a bottom line. And it makes life so much more enjoyable. So the importance of representation, not only to have representation for women, but representation for people of color, it became a principle in this book. And it became a principle sort of in my life to be like, who can I uplift right now? Because they are not being heard or they're not being seen or they're not being understood. Or how do I come to understand more people? Because I definitely have so much to learn myself. Such a good perspective. One of the things that I thought was interesting, a statistic from your book Women's pro sports coverage only represents 4% of all sports media. And so you interviewed somebody who started a company, a media company called Just Women's Sports, Haley Rosen. And I thought that was fascinating. That's such a small percentage. It's tremendously small. Tell us about Hillary and how she's tackling that issue. And how do you see women in sports getting more recognition? When you're a female athlete and you're deeply ingrained in the system, like you know how good women's sports are. And I think our biggest allies are male athletes. We cannot grow without them. And they understand we live the same lifestyle, but we just have tremendously less resources. When you see when you're growing up and like, even for soccer games, our games are free and the men's they charged. And we're like, why did they get to make money? Our games are just as good. We're just as talented we get to the same levels as they do um, in terms of NCAAs, women's sports. And so you see that coverage, but you understand still that female athletes and women's sports are just so fun. And we're so talented as athletes and we don't really see a discrepancy. We just play a different game. I think representation to your point 
really can start there because it can serve, as I say, as sort of a microcosm for women's representation as a whole. We might play it a little differently. We might have a little bit of different leadership styles, but that is like the beauty and understanding what different leaders offer, what women as leaders offer. And I think with Haley and what she's doing is tremendous. I think when I interviewed her, they had like 20,000 followers on one platform. And now they have probably millions in just what a year and a half since I interviewed her. And they have nearly $40 million in venture capital funding. And it's just showing because people are buying in once it's made visible, once that representation of women's sports is made visible, whether it's on social media or broadcasted on TV, people want to watch it. And there was a Euro championship where two women's teams in the European league playing England just won. It was the most attended and most watched European soccer game almost ever. And it was a women's game. People want it, right? Right. I love that she saw the problem and decided to tackle it by opening her own media company. It's awesome. One of the things I loved reading was Sarah Blakely's sort of advice about fear and losing the fear of embarrassment. Because when you lose the fear of embarrassment, you lose the fear of making mistakes, which can only be building blocks for learning. Tell me a little bit about that. And this might go into something else I'm building now, but Sarah Blakely was fundamental in my process of not giving up on my book because it's such a challenging process in ways I think people don't talk about. You think about all the work that you have to do to write the book and all that. But for me, that was fine. It was more so the sitting with myself and rewriting chapters eight times because I really wanted to get it to a certain level and I wasn't quite there yet. And it's sitting with your own thoughts, being able to come back to it and doing it all over again the next day. And so she taught me about the resilience, but then she also taught me a lot of what happens in the writing process and the creative process, as you probably know, is that block or that inner voice of fear in your head that just won't leave sometimes. And so she taught me how to sort of give a backseat to it and more so have fun and enjoy the process and not worry about how people were going to think about my writing, but just like letting it flow. She's so inspiring and we do care about what people think. And it's sad because it does hold us back and it really can be debilitating. So I'm constantly embarrassing myself and others. And I need to just own that and just wrap my arms around it and say, it's okay. You know, one thing really quick on that note that she says that I always keep in my head because I deeply care about what other people think, especially when they're in my close inner circle. But she taught me, you can still care about people and you can still love people, but not care about what they think about you. And that's what I always have to keep reminding myself because family and close friends, you do let their opinions affect you, but I'm really trying to unlearn. I can still love them, but not care about what they think about me. And that helps me lose the fear of trying to impress them, of trying to make sure things are okay with them and my ideas. They don't like them and that's okay. I can still move on with my idea. Yeah. And it's almost preempting sort of, you're just like, I just love you. Okay. I'm Mm -hmm. just preempting any other thoughts that could come into your mind about what they might be thinking. You just start out with, I love you and I'm just moving on. Talk about the importance of words with which you fuel yourself. In the same way, I would say that food is medicine, food is fuel. I would say that words are also medicine and word is fuel. In the same way that 
food and substance abuse can be detrimental to your life. I would say that words can also be detrimental to your life. With that, words can be your greatest ally. The way you talk to yourself can be the thing that makes you go after what you need to and you want to go after. They can also be the greatest thing that can set you back. And it's how you talk to yourself, but it's also what you let in and what boundaries you create for yourself. So when I was talking in that book, and I still go through this process where I had words that come into my mind that are very self-deprecating, that make me feel lower than I am and make me lose all of my self-worth. But now I figured out a boundary of when I start to get those thoughts, go for a walk, take a break, listen to your favorite song, breathe set boundaries because you know, you're going into a cycle that you don't want to go into. I think building that resilience against words and knowing how to use your words, especially with yourself, because then you will be able to speak kind words to other people and motivating words to other people is tremendously important to know that boundary. We can be our own worst enemy sometimes. That's where I think it all starts. It's when we are not okay within ourselves and we're not okay with how we talk within ourselves. That's when we start to project horrible things onto other people, whether it's narcissism or just tremendous lack of confidence. That's when it all becomes destructive. So you talk about freedom in the book. Mm -hmm. It's a theme. What does this mean to you? What does freedom mean in terms of your book and your business, which we're going to talk about in a second? Freedom. When I was going through the lowest depths I ever wish anyone could see and seeing like how sad and unworthy I felt, I think freedom to me just meant getting off of the bathroom floor and just not having to feel pain anymore. The greatest part about freedom is I think it changes within our life cycle. And so now what freedom means to me is acceptance. It's accepting that I'm doing the very best I can with everything that I have and I'm living with happiness but it does not mean complacent and it does not mean comfortability. I like to distinguish that because it's acceptance that I'm living in the body I'm living in. I'm happy with the way it is because I'm doing the best I can to take care of myself, set my boundaries. But it does not mean that I am by any means comfortable or complacent because those are the two words and the two thoughts and feelings to me that can really start to bring you down and back into sort of those trenches again. I'm always continuing to work and strive in things, but I'm accepting everything that is coming to me and that is happening around me and sort of living in this area of peace. Having that freedom then helps you to lift others up, Mm -hmm. which is my favorite theme of your book. Because when you find, and this is what I found from interviewing all of the incredible women from my book from almost every industry, whether they're heroes in their local community or they're heroes internationally, they found themselves and in finding themselves, they found freedom. And then that freedom to be who they were and to figure out what their superpowers were, enable them to lift up other people because we can't lift up other people if we don't have that sense of joy and fulfillment and love for ourselves and knowing like really what our skills are and our abilities are to help others. When I talk about the freedom there, it's like finding the freedom in yourself to, as you said, be able to enable and uplift and elevate others to be their unique selves, not to control them to be like how we want them to or, or like us. 
all of this has inspired you to start this wonderful sports clothing company called mm-hmm. Superhera, right? Mm-hmm. Am I saying that properly? Yes, you are. So it, it's spelled S-P-R-H-R-A, and it's pronounced Superhera. So tell us about that. I think that's pretty exciting. So while I was writing my book, I was about halfway through, submitted my first manuscript. I knew in college that we did not have women's sports apparel that fit our bodies the way our bodies function, move, et cetera. I haven't studied men's bodies, but women's bodies, we (laughs) all have tremendously different shapes, sizes. I'm six feet tall. I had teammates who are five, two. We were given the same exact sizes in soccer and they just looked very different. Our body shapes are completely different. Even my friend who's six, but our body shapes are completely different. And I said, women's bodies also fluctuate so much throughout the day, depending on that time of the month, depending on where we are in our lives. I was like, there has to be a women's sports brand out there that's offering this. I didn't see a lot of variability that also spoke to this freedom aspect and who the female athlete was. Basically what I did was I was like, I'm going to create a women's sports apparel brand that gives female athletes the freedom to perform and the freedom to perform in their sport and how they live in life. But it's also just the freedom to move, to do what they need to do. And so the past year and a half I have been, which is a large reason to why I moved home to California. So I live with my parents. I am bootstrapping this company while I work another management consulting job during the day. I found a production company in LA and I started producing using hundred percent recycled materials. I started producing a women's sports apparel brand and making sure that the whole branding is after this freedom that I talk about in my book, this freedom to perform freedom to live and be enabled to do what we need to do best so that we can play our best. And so that we can uplift others. What's in the line. You've got shorts. I saw some very cool looking shorts. Yes. So I started with shorts. We're starting very strategically and small Mm -hmm. because I don't believe in overproduction of items because it follows our mission of sustainability, but I also want to get them. And I don't mean to use the word perfect because I'm trying to lose perfectionism, but I want to get them to a place where they fit women so well that they become a wardrobe staple. And I'm starting with shorts because I interviewed 157 college and professional female athletes and about 90% of them did not have a pair of shorts that they had ever liked. And they have on average one pair of shorts they had for 10 years because they're good enough. And I was like, this is a huge opportunity for me to take advantage of the shorts market. That's great. Well, they're wonderful looking. I love the way you've taken your life experience and written about it and then now moved it into a business you're passionate about. And I just wish you the best of luck. And you need to tell us how to find the sustainable clothing. (laughs) You can find Superhera. It's at S-P-R-H-R-A. So S-P-R is super and then Hera is H-R-A and then superhera.com. The one thing that I want people to take away from now being about a year out from publishing my book and then Mm. having started my company about the same time a year later, I think a lot of people get caught up in the success of like launching something and building something. And what I have come to realize is none of that, same with the accolades in soccer, brought me true joy or fulfillment. Right now, it seems so competitive in the world of like, how many things can you launch at once? How many things can you do at once? 
the things don't necessarily matter. It's how much is that connecting you with who you are and what you want to do. My greatest fear is living a life unfulfilled. And I've always known that. So I think that I've always been on this pursuit of finding that fulfillment, which I didn't realize until, you know, a couple of years ago that it's the connection with myself. And so I would just encourage people try as best as you can not to get caught up in the launching and doing all of these things, because as a person who's been through it, like that only put me into the trenches again, but to find what I truly love and what I'm passionate about. And I know that gets overused the passion about, but finding things where I would literally be broke, poor working on and be so happy and content with my life. Finding what, you know, makes you, you and lights you up is like the most important thing that you can do for yourself and like your well-being. I can't promise it'll bring you millions of dollars, but it'll give you a fulfilling life. And for me, that's the most important thing. Marina, you are such a great role model for young women and old women like me. And I hope everyone will pick up a copy of Becoming a Superhero, Awaken Your Superpowers and Inspire the Magic in Others. So many good messages in there. And it's just absolutely a delight to meet you. And thank you for coming on our podcast. Likewise. And thank you so much for having me. I think what you all are doing and the topics you talk about and the people you interview, it's just tremendous. So I am inspired and learned so much from you all. And I just can't thank you enough for having this platform. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.